Cheeky Volley, episode 13, Wimbledon final recap. Today, we're going to review the Wimbledon final, talk to friend of Asher's, Keshav, who was at the match yesterday, revisit the GOAT discussion, and finally, at the very end, there's a, uh, a special letter from Novak's dad, a monologue written to his son about embracing the darkness, sort of his, both his pride and his issues with his son in yesterday's uh, performance. Before we start talking with Kabir and Asher, I would say watching them, I, I was only fortunate enough to watch the final set yesterday because I was flying, but my overall impression was that Djokovic was both sort of an anti-hero as no one was really like the the crowd was so dominantly fed heavy and also that his victory was in many ways the ultimate tennis victory as he stayed with Federer. Federer I think by almost all the statistics played better than Novak like whether it was Novak had more double faults if you look at total winners unforced errors even I think um points went at the net so many of the different categories that we look to uh Federer was better than Novak However, Novak hung with him. And then in the key moments, particularly every set Novak won, went to a tiebreaker. And in those moments, he was able to just play tighter and sort of the nerves got to Fed or whatever it was that got to Fed. In those three tiebreak sets, he ended up losing. And Novak ended up winning his fifth Wimbledon final, which means that between Federer and Novak, they've won 13 of the last 17 Wimbledons, I believe. So a historic match in many ways. To begin, we're going to do a quick recap set by set so asher asher you there yeah asher what time is it in london right now we always got to check uh, in about the time 11 11 45 nice you eat any ma- mangoes today uh no but i think i think i think federer is uh i think when he took the the bathroom break between sets four and five he was kind of looking heavy in the legs uh you rumors have it a pakistani mango or an indian mango they're definitely pakistani um <laughs> I kind of have a supplier over there, and rumors have it that Federer did take some Pakistani mangoes between sets four and five, uh, which helped him get to the tiebreak in the fifth. <laughs> All right, so Asher, set one, let's say about a minute or so. What's your What are your impressions? What was unique about the set? How did Federer play? How did Joker play? Um, so it started off pretty normal. I think Joker Joker looked really good from the from the baseline. He was he was super positive. He started dictating, but then Federer got his once once Federer got his slice uh, into play, especially his the the slice cross court of the Djokovic second serve of the second serve. I think Novak really sort of started dictating less. He looked he looked uncomfortable. I mean, he was still doing okay in the points. It's not it's not like if one of uh, if one of us is playing. And that we find a weakness and that the other guy is just going to miss, right? These are the two probably the greatest players ever. So it's not like Federer is going to hit some backhand slice and nobody's just going to miss. But it did it did change the dynamic around a lot. I think the the low bounce of the surface really helped Roger. And I think Federer, play, he, was, he was playing tactically perfect, I think. He was, he was blending like attack with defense, with slice really well. Uh, he served uh, incredibly well in the first set. Uh, Historically, he created, he's always used the slice against Novak, right? Isn't that like a thing he's used against Novak? Yeah, but not as effective, I think, because um, normally they, they don't play on such low bouncing surfaces. Uh, I think one point in particular where he created, a, where he on break point, sort of he used the slice to get a short forehand uh, and he just like botched the forehand completely. So I think that was probably the moment he needed to take. Um, it goes into the tie break. He plays a pretty awful tie break, especially considering how well he was playing earlier. I think he he just missed like four forehands in a row. Drops that. I think at that point, everyone is thinking, oh, the match is over. Because even we discussed on the last, last podcast that the first set was crucial for Roger. I think Dave the Legend Cross was like, straight sets, it's done. <laughs> but then we go into set two. 
Kabir, you have any thoughts on set two? Set two, Kabir. Well, what I think happened is that the first set was just so mentally demanding. Physically, yes, but they've played many first set tiebreaks before. Uh, they, I think maybe they would have expected that, but I think the first set was just mentally demanding. It almost just lost focus, second set. He never, he, he just wasn't into it. He was making classic Novak aloof expressions. <laughs> Started misfiring a lot of forehand returns. Didn't really look into it, even uh, on the set point for that. Yeah, uh, he gave up. He gave up pretty quickly. He got broken three times in but the then on, end. On, on the on the other side as well, to give credit where credit is due, I think no other player is better than Federer at shrugging off a set and moving on. Yeah, Federer did really well. Um, he I didn't think change his strategy, committed yeah, to it, and pre- got lucky pre- that... Yeah. In previous years, he might have been demoralized, um, mm-hmm. come out a bit slow, uh, but he just kept up the same level. Yeah, whereas the timing of Djokovic dipping a bit let him... Was it twenty-two minute set? Was it? Yeah, I think so. What are any erratic emotions from Novak in that second set? Did he start to seem any of his demons come into play? A little bit, you know, doing the classic stare into the sky a bit. His eyes widen, starts to talk to the coach a bit, starts to raise his hands up in the air. He just looks a bit aloof. I think that's when we first started to see it in the second set. Okay, Asher, third set. Third set. Novak, for some reason, it seemed like he was still quite aloof. Uh, he comes out, he doesn't, like, you'd, like, he took a bathroom break. You'd expect him to come out sort of like hopping, running around like maybe Rafa, uh, just trying to get himself pumped up. But he was, he was still kind of uh, depressed almost, emotionally. But to be fair to him, he did do well to kind of hang in there. He still didn't have, a, he still didn't get any break points on Federer's serve, which I, I, I've never seen like them play a match like this in which he basically doesn't, read the serve he doesn't have any impact on Federer's serve for like three whole sets uh but he did do well on his own serve he, he got a set point down um had a clutch serve he, he was in using the, the body serve really well in the in the third set in the interview after he was saying that he was having a lot of trouble reading Federer's serve do you guys have any idea like and i think Federer was m- more effective converting break points do you guys have any idea why novak wasn't good at, as like i mean you know considering he's widely regarded as the greatest return of serve ever by, by, I think, a distance. Any ideas why he was having so much trouble returning the serve? Is it, like, I think people often say Federer's serve is maybe, like, the most underrated shot in tennis. What do you guys think? Yes, um, I think maybe he just had a bad day. Maybe he just, he just wasn't picking some things up. I think maybe Federer realized that he needed to do something different so that Novak, Novak wouldn't read it. Like, obviously, I have no idea about that. Uh, there, there was a good article before the, the tournament that said Federer's embraced, like, analytics. Um, so maybe there was something in that that told Federer that he he sort of should change his patterns up in a certain way that Novak would find it harder to read. Yeah. Aside from that, um, not tr- like I I couldn't see anything specific that Federer was doing that would make uh, make it harder to read than sort of any other time they've played. Asher, related just to serve, can you talk about how I think towards the end of the second set, even the third set, Djokovic was serving so much to Federer's forehand, it almost looked like he was getting a bit uh, sketched out by the, F- the Federer slice backhand return. Yeah, yeah. Th- that was one of the more interesting things uh, tactically in the match is that I think, yeah, he was definitely getting sketched out by the, the backhand slice cross-court low. Uh, I think Federer was getting a short ball sort of when those rallies develop quite often. Federer could also chip and charge on the on the deuce side and sort of Novak lost the one time he did that. So I think Federer's forehand return, he wasn't really hitting it that hard to get into a position of strength. So Novak kind of backed himself to to play out the rally from like a neutral position from the Federer forehand as opposed to like an uncomfortable one off the slice. All right, let's well go. Set. Next set, set four. 
So again, you think that like Fed, <laughs> which was is six four Fed, correct? Six yeah. four Fed, but he he went he went two breaks up. Mm. Uh, so again, Djokovic like has a comes through like a difficult uh, mentally draining set, and he just sort of just loosens up completely. Yeah, uh, Fed, Fed, uh, Fed. By the way, sort of I saw him at the end of the third set. I think our friend Chris also said that he's struggling to reach the wide balls. Or he doesn't. He's he's lacking strength when going wide. So it didn't look if Fed Fed's body was breaking down slightly, uh, but Novak just kind of handed him the set, so it didn't it didn't really come into play. One, if there's anything in this match that Federer I think did not do very well, forehand on the run wasn't really there yesterday throughout the match. Yeah, agreed. This is like almost one of the greatest performances ever, right? Thirty-seven years old, beating Novak, uh, almost beating Novak on Wimbledon, but but yeah, just that that little thing, that forehand on the run, the the kill shot on the forehand, it just wasn't quite there. He was, at many points throughout the match, a better player. Everyone agrees for the first four sets, he, he was a better player, right? It seems like he was a better player in everything but the tiebreakers, no? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as soon as the tiebreak started, Djokovic looked at his game, and it just seemed like he was in control. He was dictating the points. He cut out the errors. The backhand still steady. First serve percentage. I mean, but actually, the tiebreaks, both of them, maybe first serve percentage wasn't I, I don't I don't remember I think it maybe wasn't as high but uh, Djokovic Fed's first and second serve percentage were higher yeah definitely Djokovic definitely I mean this is where I'm, I'm a little confused why Fed wasn't even wasn't able to get more mini breaks than tie breaks in in the tie breaks aside from the first one Djokovic was doing some sketch second serve standing really <laughs> short in the box I was thinking, all right, maybe he's going to step in. Hit. You're saying seconds of return. Seconds of returns. I know in the fifth set, he had the right idea stepping in on the deuce side and trying to take the back end of the line. He missed it, but it's probably the right idea. But there were some short second serves from Djokovic. See, I thought with the breakers, yeah, I, I, I think, I, I guess historically, I think Federer owns their tiebreak record. But I think that with the way Novak's playing now, for Federer to beat him, he has to play super aggressive, which he did yesterday. Like he played, I think some of the best, maybe the best aggressive tennis he's ever played, uh, or that in that I've seen at that like that late stage in a tournament. But in the tiebreakers, I think because Novak is so, I mean, he just wasn't he wasn't doing anything that spectacular. He just wasn't really missing, and Fed had to go for a little more. And when it's only up to seven points, I think it just made it so much. It just favored Novak style so much. It's kind of like the way Nadal owned Kyrgios in those tiebreakers. I think Federer. Um, the issue is that he just went out, went down like a mini break, like early in in all three tiebreakers. Right? Um, he kind of put himself under under pressure uh, from the beginning, um, and he couldn't he couldn't really get out of it. I think I think. Like I'm not sure if there was something intrinsic about the way sort of he was playing like in the tie breaks. I think if if he had sort of maybe stayed even for sort of the, just the beginning parts of the tie breaks, Novak would have sort of got less confident. Roger would have got more confident. Um, I think just going down early just really uh, hurt him. What do you think about Mac, uh, Patrick McEnroe's take? He he felt that in each tie break, the way he the way he characterized it was it was Djokovic playing with controlled aggression. Whatever that means. I, mean, I think no- Novak's game is like controlled aggression. It is. It's like um, the way I would describe it is aggressive tennis with conservative targets. That's like his. That oh, is yeah. like Novak's game. Yeah. Yeah. But in the tie breaks, he's able to go for lines and make it each time. But he's still. Fed was playing closer to the lines than I've seen anyone play in a match that tight. But I still think Novak was playing sort of what he just like on those developmental courts when there's the blue line. What like orange baller developmental yeah. players play on. He was just playing blue line tennis the whole match, like he always does. And then 
some of the best like grinding I've ever seen by him in, later in the match, just hitting on the run full stretch, showing like his insane flexibility. And I, I think one thing I wanted to talk about in general in these, in the Nadal match and the Novak match, I think one thing that was amazing about fed is he was doing really good in long rallies, which against both those guys, I think is really difficult, mm-hmm. but he did an amazing job winning points in long rallies. Like I think they showed there's that one point that was, I believe the longest point, right? Longest yeah. point in a, in a men's final and in fed a final. in a Wimbledon final and fed won it with a backhand. forehand backhand or forehand winner, backhand winner, backhand line. Yeah. And so he, and he did the same and against Rafa, which I think is less characteristic of him. He was winning the long rallies. Um, but I don't know if for both of them, if they almost don't care if they win those rallies as much as Novak and Rafa are both just trying to wear fed down, especially Novak. I just feel like he's just trying to wear you down to give credit where credit's due though. That's one can we, can, can we talk about <laughs> how good, the Djokovic backhand was this entire match. Is it, I mean, or just in general, in, in, general. in, in general, but also this match. I mean, I've well, never seen it. What is, what is so special about his backhand? Both, and I think separating it, his backhand return and his backhand in rallies, because I feel like they're different. Well, the backhand return, I think, one, to be able to, I mean, I think being, being a good returner has multiple elements to it one on the backhand side not only getting your racket on it but for him getting both hands on it and being able to hit it back deep on the return i think just like in general a two-handed backhand is the best technical shot for return to serve i don't think a one-hander is as good but i think the two-hand because it's usually your take back i think on a two-handed backhand is simpler than a forehand you don't have to adjust your stroke as much to shorten the backswing but i think on forehand with like the loop and the unit turn a lot of times it turns into this. Like I know tennis coaches call it like the two beat where you just turn and then fire. Like what Murray does, he's the best at it with Novak. I feel like his backhand is already pretty like a two handed backhand. I think good two handed backhands are usually pretty simple. The take back is pretty simple. There's not a huge loop and they kind of just go for it. So I think his backhand return is so good just because it's, he's like really fast to ace him is really difficult. Even though Roger did a really good job at it. And then he'll just stretch and he can, he can meet the ball on the bounce really well, which he was doing amazingly in that fifth set. If it's like a big kick serve, or he can just add pace to pace or use someone's pace to redirect the ball. But what about in, in long rallies to me, when I think about his backhand, I think one thing that's really unique about it are two things. One is he has that sneaky up the line, change of direction on his backhand, which is like, I think even early in his career, he would win a lot of points that way with just not, not even hitting it that big, but just kind of like. It's almost sometimes like a topspin drop shot. He holds it a second longer and just sneakily takes it up the line. Well, the, sec- the second thing I was going to say is then the other thing I think is his flexibility is crazy on the backhand. He'll just like, you see how long his legs are and then he'll stretch and just as long as he gets his hands on it, it's going to be in play in a pretty decent shot. Yeah, that's, that, that's what stands out for me is... Um... He kind of hits these backhands on the run and like off balance, but then he gets on balance straight away and sort of gets to the center of the court straight away. So it's like hitting the backhand and then recovering like so quickly. I think he does that better than anyone. And also in the long rallies, you know, other players with, I mean, take Andy Murray, exceptional two-hander, but a lot of times, you know, if you, if you see him in 20, 30, 35, 37 ball, ball rallies backhand, he's kind of pushing it, right? He's just guiding it cross yeah. court. Djokovic is just drilling just ripping through each ball. Maybe, I don't know if I fully believe in this, but I also feel like Novak's ground strokes are more symmetrical than Federer and Rafa's ground strokes. Like his forehand and his backhand, the strokes are 
almost more like the symmetry of a figure eight, whereas I feel like Feder and Rafa, their two shots are more different. Does that make sense? I, I, I kind of get that, yeah. I, I, see, I see what you're saying. I, I think part of the reason it seems like that, maybe, maybe it is, but for me, I think it's just the way he balances himself. It's the Asics versus Vapors. Yeah. It comes it's, it's the Asics versus Asics the Vapors. Versus Nike Vapors. This is true. No, I see what you're saying, though. But, all right, any other comments on Novak's backhand? Is it the best shot in tennis right now? I think it's the best backhand ever, right? Best backhand ever. I, don't, I think no matter what, you always take the player with the better forehand. Like, it's hard to... Who I agree, but after seeing this match, how reliable that backhand was as a defensive shot and hitting winners. I mean, yes, he hit almost 50% less winners than Federer, but still, the backhand this there every single time he needed it. I, th- I think the, the, only, the only backhand that comes close is um, a boy, uh, David Nalbandian. The F1 racer. Wait, what about, what about Stan? I love the Stan backhand. Yeah. But I, I, I guess similar. I haven't seen it tested in the same way, so it's hard for me to comment. But now, now Bandian, I think... Stand um, backhand is like a sexy shot, sort of. Well, yeah. it's also... I, I, I think the stand backhand is the most explosive backhand. Yeah. Uh, the now Bandian backhand was steady to... Just a level you can't even describe. As in, Nalbanian could like ch- change the the angle. Um, mm-hmm. I think the best out of anyone. Yeah, I think after 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 a Nadal match in two thousand nine at either Indian Wells or Miami, when Nalbanian had like five match points and he lost, uh, Nadal came out after the match and said, "Yeah, I was scared of his backhand." <laughs> his cross score dipping backhand when he just oh yeah yeah the short the short angle yeah Yeah, unreal he does that even better than Djokovic or he did it better than Djokovic fifth set fifth set and uh, let's get to the I think part of the fifth set is the conversation about the tiebreaker at 12 all but before we talk about that can we just talk about what that set was like just how close it was the two match points Mm, any other impressions you have Asher yeah so this is where I think the media is kind of getting it wrong in terms of their analysis of the match so I think generally the articles and sort of the commentaries being around uh, Djokovic the, the warrior he never gives up uh, mentally so solid I thought it was like one of the worst like choke jobs I've ever seen <laughs> in a big match uh, from Djokovic uh, I think at the end of the fourth set I think Federer's legs had pretty much gone uh, I did not expect him to win the fifth uh, Novak got got a break up early um like like I thought he would, and then and then a breakup. He serves a double fault. He's hitting these like True. awful errors, and he had um, he had a lot he, of double faults throughout the whole match, right? He was yeah, at nine, and it, like nine double faults, in, which is in, in in some pretty big moments as well. Um, he's My just like playing tennis. like. <laughs> I mean, he, he did have a, he had a double fault to lose the game, right? Uh, he did at one point. Yeah, he did. Oh, I don't I don't remember which game, but he did. It was fifth set. He lost the game on the double fault, right? Right. Uh, I can't, I can't remember that, but I just, I just like, just saw him playing just really bad tennis. Just, it, it seemed like he was choking really badly. He's getting super nervous. He gives back, he gives back the break straight away. Um, then he gets broken from like 30 love up, um, plays some more questionable shots. Federer then serves for the match. Federer, he gets 40, 15 up. Uh, first one, Novak hits a good return on the second serve. Uh, Federer, Federer hits it wide. Second one, I think we all agree Federer kind of hurried that one. Mm-hmm. Um, he got the first seven, Novak got it. I think he, he I think I, I just saw it before we started recording. It seemed like it wasn't the ball to come in on. Um, especially he sort of came in after he hit it. Uh, and it, and it definitely wasn't a good enough approach, right? 
Um, I think in retrospect, saying it wasn't a good enough approach, but I think you saw throughout the tournament when he came in, good things are happening. So I feel like if he put the approach shot in, it's, it was like a decent, I don't think it was a terrible play. I think Novak, it was, it was two Novak's forehand or backhand. I can't remember. Uh, forehand. Yeah. And he kind of came with a, with a nice little cross court pass. I don't like, did you really think it was about fed hitting a bad approach? Heat of the moment he's under so much pressure. You, there's pressure against Djokovic puts the pressure on you pressure that you have to hit a pretty amazing shot because he'll probably get a racket on it. Still, it was such a shallow approach shot. It was still past the service line. I think if you make the approach and you get in the way he's been playing, I think maybe it was a little too close to the middle of the court for who Novak is, but I still feel like that. I don't think it's, I feel like that was like, it was more about losing two consecutive points than it was about that being a bad move. No, 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 I, I agree that, that that's a good take. And also to Ash's point earlier, I think he did hit that ball at his ankle, at his ankles too. So it's probably the best he could have done. Right. Um, no, I, I saw it again though. Um, seeing it again, I don't think he should have come in. Uh, it, se- it seemed like he did rush it a bit, but like obviously it's heat of the moment, it's match point. I mean, I'm not going to blame him too much for it, right? Uh, at least he did make Novak play as opposed to missing it, saying he probably just was hoping he might hit an ace. <laughs> what about that passing shot though, when he had a chance to break? That was kind of yeah, I think, right? I think that was which that. Which, which ball? So after he lost the two match points later in the set, um, Ash, do you remember the score when he had a chance to wait, wait, break so, Djokovic? So, so, this, so this is another moment of like Djokovic kind of Djokovic kind of choking was when he lost the two match points. Novak holds serve pretty easily. Mm. Fed then goes like 15-30 down and Novak basically just gives him the game. Because mm. uh, we, we all thought that it was done at that point, right? We thought he was just going to get broken straight away. Uh, he's, not, he's not moving great. His legs aren't there. Yeah, Ash um, was already walking to the tube by then. Yeah, yeah. I was walking to the Thames. Um, <laughs> Wait, actually? <laughs> no, no, no. no, no. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we thought it was done. And then Novak, just, he's hitting returns in, like, just long. Uh, he's missing. And, and sort of... Even even throughout like throughout the last couple of weeks in in, uh, in the podcast, we've been saying that Novak is a bit suspect mentally, right? And I think this match was good evidence of that. Like after the first set, he sort of has a massive dip. After the third set, he has a massive dip. Uh, in the fifth set, he's up. He has a dip. Um, so I think this this match was there for the taking in terms of uh, Djokovic's mentality. So then now getting back to Kabir's point, which was sort of the Federer miss, which is the one that's gonna that hurts me the most. Is that at eleven all? Federer got, he came back from forty love down. Mm. Uh, another instance of sort of Novak kind of giving it away. Was, that, was he down when it was forty thirty? Novak serving. Didn't Fed hit a sick winner? Yeah, yeah. That was an unbelievable. It was was it in a forehand down the line? It's off the line, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was an amazing shot. But and, and then continue. Federer gets one break point in which he. Um, Novak kind of plays a good point, but Federer sort of lunges on the backhand, uh, hits, tries to hit like a slice passing shot cross court, misses by like a couple of inches, uh, gets another break point, and Novak hits a really bad approach, and it's on Federer's forehand. And I think there was a point earlier in the set on a break point where Federer went cross court on a on a passing shot, and Novak went the other way, and he got broken. And this time Novak went for the cross court, probably a bit too early. Uh, and Federer did not hit, did not hit it hard enough or wide enough. And Novak kind of hit an easy, had an easy volley, um, which he kind of messed up as well. 
even the commentators were like, he, he has not hit that cleanly, but it was still wide enough for Federer so that Federer could only hit a pretty tame lob back. But I think if there's if there's like one shot that Federer had on his racket that he, he probably wishes the most that he could get back is that one. Mm. Well said. What about in general net play by Fed throughout the tournament in this match? Because I don't... Do you guys have this? Our our intern just came in, so he was supposed to prepare them. <laughs> intern and physio Jared Stratus here now. We'll get his takes in a minute. He came in quietly as he often does. Yeah. We uh, but it was something like forty five for fifty something, right? Fed's w- points one at the net. Do we have the exact stat? Yeah, I think it, it was over seventy percent. It's over seventy percent, which is roughly where he's been since the French Open. And but what about just in like because I think. At Wimbledon, we want there to be like net plays should be very. I think it should be always. It always is effective. People don't, aren't doing it as much as they used to. I think Fed made comments previously about how like next gen is bad at net. Uh, <laughs> Zverev is like the perfect example of that. <laughs> but what about um? Real quick, what is Zverev doing right now? Just can we get some some ideas? Ibiza or Bali? Bali, Bali. Okay. All, right. All right, carry on. Maybe posting some vids <laughs> of him in Bali. So. But Federer at the net in that match and in general, any thoughts? Uh, he, he, looked, he looked great there, yeah. I think he looked, I mean, as good as he possibly could be at the net. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he, really, uh, that's what's tough about this match. I mean, if you, if you look at everything he did, it was just a few points, right? No, it was just tiebreakers. It was basically yeah, just tiebreakers. Tie breakers. If, you, if you look at, like, historically, some of, some of the matches he's played against Rafa and Novak, I think one thing that stood out is, like, they've hit a lot of passing shot winners. Um, especially in the close games, but in this game, I, I didn't remember like Novak hitting that many. I think mm-hmm. uh, I think previously, Federer sort of used to come in a couple of times, and then he used to get past, and then he used to get demoralized and not come in again. Uh, I think he got past early on in the first set, but he he kind of still kept coming in. So yeah, no, he looked he looked great. I think he was coming in enough. He, maybe he could have come in a bit more, but I think given how well he played, um, and like he basically did win the match, like he was just like like literally like an inch away from winning. Um, like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say he, sh- he should have come in more. All right, so we have a friend of our, our friend of Asher's, Kishov, based in London right now, who's at the match yesterday. So we're going to have him on, ask him a couple of questions about the match. Kishov, you there? Hey guys, thanks for having me on the show. I'm excited to be here for sure. Sick. All right, Kishov. So can you explain how the energy changed throughout the match? Uh, well, first, what were your seats? Where were your seats? So I was in Gangway 312, which is U Block 73. I mean, like it's imprinted on my mind forever. But I think, I think the way center court is structured is that unless you're truly in the nosebleeds, everyone has a pretty good view. I was sitting, uh, I would say, uh, diametrically opposite the Royal Court, 5 p.m. Oh, so, well, that was sick. <laughs> yeah, and so, and so I was sitting, like, you know, behind the server's arm, essentially, uh, but not directly behind. Uh, I would say 5 p.m. from the server's arm. Well, how would you say the uh, – well, first, can you also say how you got your tickets? Yeah, sure. So the UK, I mean, the Wimbledon system allows you to effectively apply for a ballot per household. um, And then you get a finite number of tickets. You get the option to actually buy the tickets. So I was fortunate. I won the ballot. I bought the tickets. um, And I only only won two tickets. And both of them were for Santa Cor on the last day. Okay, and for the for the cheeky for the cheeky listeners, I've been uh, I've been submitting like uh, at least twenty applications from like different fa- family friends every single year for the last ten years, and I've maybe won twice. So this is this is like some achievement. The guy moves to London, and in his first year gets uh, Senecourt Federer Djokovic, one of the greatest matches ever. It's it's pretty sick. 
Completely agree. I, I also have <laughs> failed in four years to get in the overseas ballot. Have you ever been to any? Have you ever been to any other Grand Slam final or like deep in a Grand Slam tournament? I have not. I've seen the U.S. Open every year I spent uh, in uh, my my time in New York, which was four years, uh-huh. but never but never anything uh, beyond a semifinal. Have you been on Ash before? Yes, I have. Sorry, I've been on Arthur Ash and Armstrong both. Yeah. And how did the? How would you say the energy compared? And just the viewing experience at Arthur Ashe versus uh, at Wimbledon. So I have to admit, I mean, there's a bit of, uh, you know, apples to oranges comparison because I was at center court Wimbledon, Djokovic-Federer versus, uh, you know, the, the previous games. But I think just let, let me pause that and give you two cents on, like, how the experience actually played out. Center court at Wimbledon is, like, truly an institution. It's everything you've imagined and more. It's church for two weeks. Everyone goes home for the rest of the year till next year. And everyone there is a believer. Like tennis is their religion. And at this point in, in tennis era, Federer is their God. Like everyone there worships Federer. It is truly a biased crowd. I mean, his, <laughs> his, his faults, his double faults, his errors, everything is getting, his being Djokovic is, is getting cheered on. And the moment anything goes south for Federer, like the crowds sway heavily. So on, as as a you know as a very as a pretext, I mean, just set the tone by saying that there is that there is an institution and everyone there is a believer and they believe in Federer. Um, and then you know, moving from there, like I think I've had my share of adrenaline filled experiences in my life. I've been a part of a car accident. I was not driving. I had a grizzly family encounter my campsite in Alaska. I've done skydiving. The amount of life feeling and intensity that was in the court yesterday can animate a wooden bench. Like it was absolutely incredible. It was four hours, 50 minutes of exhausting tennis and everyone at the end had more adrenaline in their body to run a marathon. I mean, it, it was, it was truly one of the most phenomenal sporting experiences I've ever had. Uh, I think Djokovic played a stunning game, you know, level of resolve to eliminate two match points, come back, win, He's been here before, he's done it, uh, he did it again. But I, th- I do think that, you know, the, the natural comparison here is going to be 2008 Nadal, um, where I think Federer lost the match as much as Nadal did. I think here, without going too much into statistics, I would say that, uh, you know, this was, I, I felt personally that this was uh, Federer blowing, blowing in on, on a couple of points uh, as much as, you know, maybe Djokovic is holding his ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, the day ended on an absolute high. Uh, obviously, I was I was really bummed out with the, with the result. Uh, but you know, I, I had to come back. I was just telling these guys before we got on. I had to come back, um, and I had to read David Foster Wallace's Roger, Fe- the you know Roger Federer as a religious experience to like calm my nerves down before I could sleep. And that and that article, by point of reference, is it's literally like 13 years old at this point. So it just gives you a sense for how dominant a player uh, Roger Federer has really been throughout his career. Proper description, spoken like a true Federer fan. Uh, <laughs> that description of Wimbledon being an institution that's truly biased, is that's great. That's really good. <laughs> I guess on, on, on that point, if you could comment on the extent of the bias. I mean, I think definitely this morning, there are numerous articles uh, reviewing the final, and many of them are commenting on just how much they were booing Djokovic throughout the match. Yeah. Can you comment on that a bit and how, how it was to be there for that? And like related to that, what percentage of the fans you would say were Joker fans? So I think, uh, and you know, this goes back to my point on uh, 
Wimbledon being an institution and tennis being the religion, I think, uh, you know, even if you were a Federer fan, you would see, uh, and, and you would relate with other Federer fans on a good point, you would see them cheering Djokovic. So it's actually very tough because they, they were not cheering a player at that point, they were just cheering a really good rally or some amazing shot or a great return off of one of, you know, an impossibly low slice that Federer basically picked up. And so I would say that if you were, you know, gun to my head, put a number to it, I would say about 20% were out and out Djokovic fans. But at any point, you know, you would see that number sway all the way up to 40, sometimes 50% of the crowd really cheering an amazing knock because Djokovic played like a true champion yesterday. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, I think from, um, from, from what I could tell from TV, the crowd was still pretty, pretty sedate and quiet, right? So compared to the U.S. Open in 2015, where there was a massive rain delay to start the match and everyone got drunk, I think that was the most hostile atmosphere I've ever seen in a tennis, in a tennis match. But it, but but it's interesting though. I, you know, I I think in this matchup, and and I don't entirely blame Djokovic for it, uh, because 16-time Grand Slam champion by all measures and all statistics, you can slice and dice one of the greats. But he doesn't get the love of the crowd. And I think he's like this starved, you know, tennis great who is unfortunately or fortunately lived in the time of Federer. And then more importantly, lived in the time of Federer versus Nadal. Like the, the build up into Federer versus Nadal in and of itself, you know, and the win from that, from, from the back of that was telling that the crowd was obviously focused on, hey, Federer is in the final. Not that this is Djokovic's fifth or sixth. Uh, I don't even know what the number is, but um, or fifth, right? Or uh, you know, this is going to be once again uh, a great year for for Djokovic going in, or his sixteenth. I mean, by a lot of measures, you should really think of you know Fe- uh, Djokovic playing a phenomenal uh, piece of tennis. But he doesn't get that from the crowds. He plays his heart out. He comes in mentally disciplined after the last couple of years of you know personal turmoil that he's gone through. Uh, and he he wins convincingly, but he doesn't get the adoration of the crowds. He just yeah, doesn't get Alex, it. Alex, uh, Alex's adopted child theory. <laughs> yeah, I think we've we've been very. I mean, to, totally agree on that point. We've been very vocal about Djokovic really just being crowded out by the fans' passion for Federer and Nadal. And I mean, you can even see in Djokovic's celebration the kind of smirk towards the crowd. Yeah, when he won. Yeah, I, I actually I caught that on video, which I'm happy to share with you guys. Uh, but but there was there was that moment right where he wins, and then he walks to the center of the court. He gets on his haunches. He eats grass, and then he starts slamming his chest. And it's almost like I just beat your boy at his house. Almost villainous. Almost it's, villainous. It's it's vindictive. You know that spirit of. I'm a rebel and, and I did what I did in the face of, defi- defied all odds and in the face of a crowd that cheers my double falls. I think it, it, that, that like just personifies Djokovic, uh, Djokovic's being inside of a court with Federer. And I think that gets to his head, by the way, because uh, I, don't rem- I, I, didn't, I was in the crowd, so I don't remember the, the details, but there was a point in time where Djokovic was given a warning. I think it was the first warning for his conduct on the court. Right. And and time and again, you've seen him break under pressure or react in a certain way, um, and and that's because of. And then you you see the antidote on the other side of the court, which is Federer just doing his thing. He's floating on the ground, you know. He's a butterfly, and he's playing the strokes that all of us who've played tennis 
I've played far less than you guys have. I know it's, you know, it's incredibly difficult to play. Uh, and Djokovic is doing also the same thing, but he just doesn't get the recognition for it. And I think that gets to him. I, I, you can see it in him at times. This is a question for all you guys. If, if it was Novak Rafa, taking into account that Novak's, let's say after he's won five Wimbledons, uh, who do you think the crowd favors? Like would it be Rafa, a heavy Rafa but, favorite? Yeah. Yeah, like uh, 60-40 maybe instead of 80-20. Yeah. Yep, I would, I would say the same. I think Rafa. Yeah, 70-30. <laughs> All right, I have a, uh, a couple more questions for you, Kashav. I'm not sure if you're going to have a comment on this, but I thought the light in the match was really beautiful. Uh-huh. Do you have any comments on the way the physical environment of the court in terms of like, I thought on TV, they almost looked like uh, angelic or just the light was really amazing. Do you have any <laughs> no, comments on that? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think, uh, you know, London weather is a funny thing, by the way, like you have, you have a mix of overcast and then all of a sudden you have these, you know, shards of light coming right through it. Um, to your point, there were definitely times uh, during, during the game, especially during the, you know, latter half of the game, I think the fifth set in, in particular, where you just saw light on certain parts of the court, uh, sometimes revealing, say, the board, or sometimes it's revealing a certain, you know, certain angle at which Federer was playing a shot, which gave the backdrop to, t- to the tennis that we all were watching. <laughs> and I, th- I certainly think that, uh, I mean, obviously you can't orchestrate these things, you can't even design for them, but it's, it's purely... I think it's just us kind of, you know, trying to join the dots back where we want to believe almost that because you have Federer and Djokovic and you have sun falling in certain angles uh, that you're seeing, you know, two titans and and almost gods playing at one another. Uh, But it did add to the whole narrative. I mean, you can get really romantic about these things. And it did add to the whole narrative where you saw and and it came to only certain parts of the court because the, the clouds were moving. It was overcast for you know, I think a bunch of like the second and the third set. And then the sun came right back. Um, but it was a perfect finishing. Like it was literally that twilight right at the end, uh, which it was late, right? It was 6.37 uh, in, in, uh, in, in London. And, and you saw the light falling just so beautifully on, on, on Federer and, and the way he was playing his game. So it did add to the flavor. Was the sun setting on Roger Federer? <laughs> <laughs> Which is also, uh, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a great, I think it's a Grantland uh, article. I don't know if you guys have read that one, but super old one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've read it from 2014. Brian Phillips, who's a, who's a really great tennis writer. Uh, yeah, that was... Rogers, still phase of Roger's career. That was a beautiful, like, the sun never sets on Roger Federer or something like that. But great article. Huh. My okay. Last question: uh, Can you describe each tiebreaker what they felt like while you were there? Because that, to me, seems to be the key to this match was how Roger played in the breakers. Oh, all right. That is. I'm gonna have to collect. Like, my let's say the tiebreaker in the first set, which ended at it was seven five, right? Uh, yeah, yeah it was seven. Uh, any? Yeah. Do you have any impressions from that breaker? Honestly, I'll have to collect my thoughts uh, on on the specific memories, mm, but let me think through it. But on, or on the TV. second, or the third. What about the third? I feel like that would be more memorable. Yeah. Yeah. So first off, I thought 
it's not first to seven. I thought it was a tie break for 10, or at least that's what the rule book said. Is it um, in the last set? In the last set, in the last set, you mean? Yeah, Australian Open is ten. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I guess classic Wimbledon doing things their way. They decided to do a seven-point topic, which I mean, we can comment on this later. I think that's another conversation. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Point, but how different was the overall vibe after Fed lost those two match points? Was it? Oh, okay. That, it I think that, yeah. Doom. So, was there still hope? No. So I, I, there was no point in the fifth set. Even after he lost, uh, or whatever, you know, eliminated, got eliminated, his, his two match points got eliminated. Where uh, there was there was a sentiment of it's out of his hands. In fact, it was more of uh, okay, he lost on his serve, and therefore it, it's it's a point lost, not Djokovic's point one. Uh, and so, and, and I, I don't even think that was fool's hope. That was like truly what people thought about it in the in the crowd. Um, and it never went really south where people were all of a sudden leaving or, you know, there was <laughs> a loss of heart. It was, it was a lot of vigor, a lot of passion. There was, if anything, more support for Federer. Where, where they funny felt, uh, yeah, go ahead. Good, that's funny because Brett Kabir and I were just like done. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was, if anything, it, it, it was not, you know, I felt that way, by the way, in the second set versus Nadal. But I was like, okay, Jesus, this is this is it. Six one, he's not like you know, he's right. he's seen a great first set and now he's fizzling. But then he came and like it was a near perfect victory with four sets. That conversation aside, I think you know in in that in that uh, in that game, I think it was seven eight, where he lost to uh, on his serve. People came back in in the next game with a lot more passion and vigor. I mean, if if and when. You know, you saw this continue. You would have seen that all all of the cheers, all of the support, all the belief just kept it snowballed into more. It was it was more compounding than it was uh, people just losing hope. Uh, that is far more distinctive as a memory uh, than like the the individual tie breaks. Of course, needless to say, that the last one is the one that's most fresh in my memory. Um, and I felt like you know, even though Djokovic won in his tie breaks, he won convincingly. Like, there's, there's one case we made that, yeah, he only won tie-break sets. Like, you know, Roger was really eating his feet still. It was comparative, but it could have gone either way. Uh, there's also School of Thought was actually saying that, look, after four sets and then 12 all in the fifth, it's just probably weighted. If you had played seven, you had an outcome. But if you had made that 10, you might have had another outcome. And if you made that 15, you might have had another outcome. So is Djokovic truly a winner? But I think that's the beauty of sport. It's a zero-sum. Like, you have a winner and a loser. And so coming back to your point on the on, only decisive thing about that match, though, was the tiebreakers. Like that was the only thing that was clearly Djokovic was better than Federer. Exactly. Respect. Exactly. So th and that's really where I was, was going, which was like you, there's one school of thought which says, oh, three sets, all tie breaks. But then the tie breaks themselves were very decisive. And I think uh, I think the, the one that I remember most distinctly, which is which is the last one uh, there, it was. It was not, it was not loss of hope, but it was an empathetic like reconciliation with the fact that this guy is 38 with four kids. He should be playing Lego and like coloring books and sitting on a couch. <laughs> he has played five. He's played the longest finals, uh, men's singles in the history of the sport. And it's you know at, at this point it gets more abstract than an objective goal of winning more titles to him being Roger Federer. Like at the end of the day. 
Novak Djokovic was the champion. He was a winner of the Wimbledon. But Roger Federer was still Roger Federer. And I think the crowd recognized that by the time that the last set tiebreak was being played. Yeah, I completely agree. Definitely looking back on the match, even during the match, never really felt that Federer was in any of the tiebreaks. Yeah. I mean, he got down one too many breaks each one. And I think one or two of the tiebreaks, yeah, he got back within one break. But still, he kind of felt that he was destined to lose them. And yeah, I think I, it was, was the yeah. in the in the fifth set tiebreak, the half volley in the deuce side of the court that I I I think ended it. What do you guys think about like his? I mean, is it is it more this season than than before? But the amount he shanks the ball, I think it's been less this season. Um, it's frustrating that it had to end with a shank, but I, I do think he he's been shanking less this season. I mean, he does. He's of all people considered the greatest of all time. He definitely shanks the most. Though. Yeah, I mean, definitely. De- defi- he does for someone who's likely the best of all time. How does he? He does shank a lot of ball. On the topic of shanking, though, how much more did he shank when he played with the smaller head size? Are we forgetting? Was it a lot, a lot more back then? I mean, it must have been, right? I mean, he's using ninety-seven now, and he was playing with a ninety. Did he ever shank a ball against Roddick, though? Yeah, <laughs> but no, but no, he didn't wait though. No, he, he never, he never needed to hit like a topspin backhand against Roddick, right? It was only the slices, so he wasn't mm. tanking them. True. Right. Keshav, I just have uh, one last question for you. Which, yeah, sure. Did you did, did you see any celebrities and uh, which ones? <laughs> yeah, uh, there was, of course, the Royal Box, if you can call them celebrities. But yeah, Kid, and uh, there was. Who else? There was uh, Thor from the Avengers. I don't know his name. Like, I don't know his real name, but he was there. <laughs> uh, there, there were, I saw these guys. They were all sitting you know, in the vicinity of one another. There was Benedict Cumberbatch, who was clearly visible, uh, distinctly sitting right there next to Thor, actually. Close to ben- Thor. Benedict is a huge uh, Bautista good fan. <laughs> Bacala. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, those are the three that I, I distinctly remember. Nice. Nice spotting. Of course, I mean, you know, broadly, I mean, the, the, the tennis celebrities themselves were, were all over the court, but yes, uh, amongst the others. All right, Kejav, if you want, you want to stay on for the rest of the pod? It's up to you, dude. I'll listen in, actually, at this point. <laughs> you said so you'll I will, yeah, I'll mute myself and listen in. You guys can keep going. Now, the Isner rule, the 12 all tiebreaker, I think it should be it should be called the Isner rule. Isner playing for the New York Empire yesterday. Can you imagine playing tennis after playing prof- professional tennis after that match? Anyways, uh, so Isner's playing world team tennis yesterday on the first day of his sort of when we saw the twelve all tiebreak rule come into effect, which I think it should be called the Isner rule because well, it was Isner versus Mahu, right? No, uh, and then it, it, Isner versus Anderson last year. I'm sorry, Isner versus Anderson last year that went to 60-58? 70-68. Uh, wait, last year was last year was like 26-24. Isner yeah. Mahut was 70-68 yeah. in 2010. Yeah. And that was at Wimbledon, right? Yeah. yeah. And that was 70-68. He also had the one was versus Anderson, which was, what was the score of that one? That was in the 30, 26-24, something like that. But even, even though, you know, it's almost the, the Mahu one was, yes, it was 70-68. It was so dramatic. But I think the... The Isner-Anderson one was almost more 
I think this is the one that really facilitated the rule chain. It's because Anderson arrived to the match with just no energy. Guy's dead, dead on arrival. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think also, that's... also they also because of because of that match, like um, Novak Rafa had to be um, suspended at the end of the third set, and they had to come back the next day. Oh, right. Um, to, to fix the scheduling like issues with like a semifinal because obviously no one cares about a first round match, right? Mm-hmm. But because it was a it was a semifinal, he had they had to make the change. But to me, it seems like the whole point of the rule, the most important thing, is that because I think the fans will watch if it's the final. I don't think the rules in the final sh- are like I don't think shortening a match in the final is that important. It seems like the point of the rule is so that the guy isn't just totally cooked for the next match. Like if yeah. you if you play a match and you play a hundred games in a set or something, it's in the fifth set. Your next match in a day or a day and a half, whatever it is, it's literally like you played four other sets. Yeah. You're gonna be toast. Yeah, I, I feel like it should. Yeah. I think it's a good rule, but I think the finals should be straight up. Yeah, completely agree. Play it out. I mean, uh, was it McEnroe? Hey, that's that's a great take. Yeah, he liked it. Yeah, he liked it. And then and. They asked Federer in the press conference. They said, look, can you comment on that? And, and he was very diplomatic about it. He said, look, it he is what it is. He respects the rules. Yeah, I respect <laughs> it. Which is a pretty good answer, honestly. Like, I think it's a good answer. I think it's a lame Yeah, but wasn't it to his advantage, though, being like 37? You know, the, when, the rule. To, of, yeah, for Federer. Like, I feel like that, that I, benefits him. I think it does benefit him, but I feel like in the fifth set, well, I guess it's hard to say. Yeah, but I was I thinking think, maybe with the adrenaline, they would just be fine. But yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's a good point. I think based on what we said about the breakers earlier, though, I think playing the games no matter what benefited fed i think based on the way novak played every one of those tiebreakers yeah yeah and that's like a kind of a hindsight opinion yeah but I, I think that the the fifth set of the final only should be straight up play it out play it out till fetters like 40 years old <laughs> and like tears his labrum but Maybe, before that, I, I think it's I think it's a good rule. Maybe thirty all in the fifth. Gillette comes out, and you know there's a the player shave. <laughs> but I I do think do you think they were thinking about like okay I want to win this before twelve all or they just I kind of like they were just trying to get to twelve all. It's hard to say. I, I agree though. There, there, there definitely was some feeling that it was there, there was an inevitability to tiebreak, and almost they knew it too. It was just playing to get to the breaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think that, I think that definitely might have been like uh, like a conservation type of like of energy from both guys because they knew that it was coming. Do you remember early in the fifth set? Actually, Djokovic asked the umpire, "When is the tie break?" I think <laughs> just though. No, no, no. But I think he meant. No, I don't mean in a joke. I mean he meant like, is it at twelve all or is it at ten all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it. I mean, I mean, yes. Obviously, they were going to think about it. It was kind of a Kowalski. But it's a interesting comment. This year, this year. I think let's any other before we move on any other takes about the fifth set. Yeah, I mean last take on it. I think I mean um, one. I'm I'm completely in favor of playing out the fifth. I think if you're going to do tiebreak, it's got to be a ten point super tiebreak. Yeah, kind of like USTA tournament style. Yeah, ten picks. <laughs> maybe it's a ten point super tiebreaker for the fifth set. I mean, I get it. What is seven to ten? It's not a huge difference, but I think you just try little- to lengthen it out. Just yeah. I don't, don't like the way because ten. I feel like there can be uh, sort of peaks and valleys of the 10 pointer. The seven pointer is uh, you go up, you get that early mini break or you're up like three zero. Yeah, it's pretty tough. All right. But I think we move on. Or do you start or do you play the 21 underhand serve? Yeah, maybe you just play (laughs) underhand serve. Um, So, all right, Asher, 
historically, where does this match rank? Let's say, I just want to say last three decades. I don't think, let's say from like Pete Sampras forwards, even if you feel more comfortable just from Federer's career since he started playing early 2000s to now, where does this rank and what are the other matches that it kind of it competes with? And Ash, okay. surely this doesn't, surely Fred Perry is still the best Wimbledon final, no? <laughs> All right, so um, so I've I've come up with a list, and uh, I've broken down like the greatest matches into four categories. Um, so category one is just like pure quality, um, so just pure tennis. Like there's both guys playing at their best. Um, obviously, it needs to be like fairly deep in a tournament. So in in that category, I've got like um, Nadal Verdasco 2009, uh, Nadal Dimitrov uh, 2017. Nadal Verdasco 2009. When is where where and when? Australia, okay. uh, Australian Open semi-final. Um, Verdasco is just hitting um, missiles off the forehand, and then they were just going at it for five sets. Uh, Nadal Dimitrov, uh, I think 2017 as well was one of the best matches I've seen, just pure quality-wise. For the for the listeners uh, though, can you say where it was, what round? Sure, sure, yeah. Uh, so Nadal Verdasco Aussie Open semis, 2009. Nadal Dimitrov. Uh, Aussie Open semis 2017. Uh, Djokovic Kovinka in the Aussie Open in 2013. The the first one of the trilogy uh, that went to 9-7, I think, or 11-9 in the fifth set. Uh, I think that that was like Vavinka's coming out party. Uh, after that match, he sort of became uh, fully ingrained in like the top three, top four. Uh, I've got Safin Federer Australian Open semis 2005. Kabir, uh, big Saf and Fed, any thoughts? Yeah, sick match. I. What did it do for Safin's political career? Oh, it was everything. It was th- th- this gave him the nomination. So that match, actually, I was in eighth grade, two thousand five. Um, this Were is. Were you on the debate team yet? No, that was ninth grade. Okay. This was pre <laughs> pre iPhones, pre all of that. I remember I was in science class, physics class, running like taking so many bathroom breaks to go to the library to check the score. <laughs> and when I saw on the third set that they'd split sets. I called my, literally stepped out, went to the office, like spoke really softly, called my mom, said, I need you to pick me up. <laughs> Convinced my mom to pick me up. I went home and I watched the match. Sick. Amazing. <laughs> All right, that, Ash, that was one of my favorite matches. Uh, any other thoughts on that match or just you want to keep going? Um, you know, actually, I actually used to be a big Safin fan, so I was supporting Safin. And supporting Safin was, like, the worst um, because he, he had so much talent. He should have been world number one for years. Yeah. But, like, the biggest head case ever. Horrible, uh, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I the think, amount I think, of anxiety watching his matches is him losing probably, like, 90% of the matches I watched of his. Uh, he was forced to sort of play in the best barricades when barricades yeah. were really serious. Oh, yeah, yeah. The two, The bar- the twos, yeah. yeah. Two. Him and Hedman, yeah. Mm-hmm. He used to use a classic um, head prestige, uh, the PC. The, was it PC 600, 93 square inch? PC 600 classic with the liquid metal paint job. Mm-hmm. Okay, so continue, Asher. All right, so that, that, that's category. Um, category two is just length. So it's just like Anderson oh. Isner, 2018, long. Isner Mahout, <laughs> long. <laughs> I remember a Roddick, Roddick versus Yunus El Anawi at the Australian <laughs> Open, like 2003 or 2001. Yeah. Dude, I uh, love Anawi because so- I think there was some weird statistic like he started playing tennis at like in his teens or something. <laughs> like really weird that I always loved about him. And he had gray hair. Uh, yeah, that went that got so deep. I think they gave the rackets to the ball boys, and then the ball boys were just like playing for playing around for a bit. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Roddick took that 21-19. He was obviously like wrecked for the next match. Mm. Um, so then obviously the main category is like uh, like stakes, so like uh, GOAT implications and like the players. So it's all like Federer, Nadal, Federer, Djokovic. Mm. But so so I'll get into that a bit. I'll get into I'll get into those matches in a bit. But my um, the final category I have is choke festival. <laughs> um, oh, very nice. <laughs> so the match the match that I want to talk about is Gaston Gaudio versus Guillermo Correa oh, in the 2004 yeah. French Open. Is it, if, what, if you round, think, what round? Final. Final. final the final. Okay. If you like, if you think that like we choke amongst ourselves, <laughs> you you haven't you haven't you haven't you have no idea what was going on in this match. So Gaston Gaudio, he comes out. In the 12 and unders, I played this kid. I was up 5-2. It was just one set because it was a round robin. 5-2 triple match point, and I lost the match. (laughs) I still know the kid's name. I won't say it, but it was like a pretty traumatic experience. But anyways, continue. I think think that might come close to this match. So so this man, Gaston Gaudio, he's he's kind of like a a journeyman player. He has a great backhand, though. Um, Korea is like the best player on clay. Um, I think before Nadal, he was kind of the yeah. number one clay court player. Yeah. So 2004, this is the year before Nadal won. Also, his first king French. of the small, probably the best player under five ten of all time. Wasn't he? Right. I think he was about five ten, five eleven. Definitely minimal firepower, shaky serve, ridiculously shaky good. Shaky serve. Shaky serve. I mean, I think that's what ended his career. Great two handed backhand, though. I mean, he he was the original five nine, five nine. Okay, five nine. Original Nadal, though, winning Monte Carlo, right? Winning Rome. Taking roids, taking steroids. (laughs) So yeah, so Gaston Gaudio, like he's heavy underdog. Um, He he sort of hasn't won anything really of note in his career. Korea has won like all the all the clay masters, I think. So Korea wins the first two sets, like six love, six two. Gaudio's not in it. So then in the third set, like all of a sudden, Korea starts like panicking for some reason. And then Gaudio takes the third set and fourth set. And it looks like Correa is injured, but he's not injured. He's just, like, panicking. Do you remember and what we, Correa did between the fourth and the fifth set? No, I don't. He drank a Coke. Did he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm the only one that remembers that. <laughs> so we, we go into the fifth set, and this is some of the best choking you, you'll ever see. So, <laughs> so Gaudio, Gaudio wins the fourth 6-1. So after losing the third, Correa just, like, he just goes into a shell completely. The fifth set, Korea is like, he's sort of, he's not even doing like the full serve. He's not putting effort into the serves. He's, he's just serving. And because he's sort of playing so badly, Gaudio doesn't know what he's doing. And then he just starts missing. And eventually Korea gets match points somehow, despite playing like a 15-year-old who's not very good at tennis. And then he sort of like chokes on top of his regular choking and then I don't know how Gaudio won, but eventually he won like eight six in the fifth. <laughs> and Korea never really recovered from that, right? I don't think he won. Did he win no, a title he, after that? No, I think by 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 two thousand six he was like done yeah, from like he the disappeared tour. Disappeared for at least a year, year and a half. But I think he had an elbow injury. He came back. His serve was he was double faulting like at least one 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 two double faults a game. It was yeah yeah yeah. He had a big. Yeah, I think he got the yips on the serve. Okay. All right. Continue. So any other choke fests? Uh, well, that was the one that comes to mind. Do, do you guys remember any uh, any particular like? I think I think it's always one guy who chokes. I've I've never seen like a festival of choking uh, quite like that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I, I have to think about this. We could do a whole. We should do a whole episode about this. It's a fe- festival of festival yeah, of choke. Festival of choke. <laughs> okay, but that comes to mind. That's the best. That's the best. So let's move on to the 
the main the main category the stakes category so i think yeah. the for, for the match with had the highest goat stakes was fedor davidenko <laughs> <laughs> but which which fedor davidenko there were so many um, world tour finals <laughs> oh yeah and davidenko won that so I guess he's the goat. <laughs> uh, Asher, go though, because we uh we don't want to get this. We want to keep this relatively short. Not not yeah. not your segment. It's an amazing segment, but we do want to. Yeah, yeah. Keep it no, moving. no, I agree. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think I think we we we'll all agree that um, Federer Nadal 08 is still number one, right? As in this match, I think in terms of fifth set drama uh, was better, but. Do you think what that level of tennis? Do you think it was better? I feel like I have to go back and rewatch it to know. I think the the thing that was amazing about this is the 2008 match had the rain delay because this didn't have a rain delay. The continuity of the tennis and I think what that does mentally, like no one could have gone was going in for an injury timeout. There's no injury timeouts, right? And then there was no rain delay where someone could go and reset. I feel like that made this spectacular. And I think the only the kind of the the thing that's different is I think the second set of this match makes it because what what was the score line in two thousand eight? Uh, six four six four six seven six seven nine seven. Right. So, so everything all, all, was all close sets. Yeah. All a break or a break or breakers because this had that weird second set where Novak kind of wasn't that present. Well, the fourth set as well, because Federer went up two breaks in the fourth. So I, I put the fourth set as well in terms of like an uncompetitive set. So, yeah, so th- that's where this match uh, falls mm-hmm. for me. Okay. So you think, so you, do you leave 2008 as number one? I, I leave 2008 as number one. Okay. Any other in the goat, in the kind of stakes category, anything else come to, that you have? What about the um, Nadal Federer Australian Open final from? Yeah. So that, that's, that's on my list. And um, Nadal Joker French last year, right? Wasn't that spectacular? No, uh, Nadal, Nadal Djokovic, I think 2013 semis, which went to nine, seven in the fifth. And that, that's also on my list. Okay. Um, so yeah, Fed Nadal 2017, um, amazing match. Um, I think, I think Federer's last five games, Probably the best tennis that's ever been played ever. Um, but I think the issue with that is that the sets individually were sort of was quite one-sided. So Federer won the first pretty easily. Nadal won the second pretty easily. Federer uh, won the third pretty easily. Nadal then won the fourth. Um, there, there was no drama, right? Like So the Federer-Nadal 2008 had the best tie-break ever uh, in the fourth set. Um, Fed-Nadal 17... Amazing, amazing, uh, amazing quality, but sort of kind of one side sets. So that didn't make my top five uh, for that reason. I think just the drama of the fifth set alone in this match, I think outweighs like all of the others. So it didn't make the top five. Um, I think Djokovic Nadal at Wimbledon last year is the, is the one that you might be thinking of, oh, which yeah, went to yeah, 10 8 in the yeah, fifth. That, that was the one that with was like two days. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think that probably quality wise might be the best. How about, uh, Jao Sosa over Chilich in straight sets. <laughs> <laughs> Asher, did you did you put in the 2009 Roddick Federer final? Uh, For 16, no, 14 in the fifth. Uh, I didn't because it's just um, it's, that was a frustrating watch to match. Uh, some match to watch. The um, way I remember that match is it was a little bit of charity by Fed. Like Roddick had just been getting slain for so long that it was like kind of later in his career he had made it back to the final and Fed kind of indulged him maybe. Um, maybe I fed one the third set, but I think Roddick, um, I think Roddick was a better player in that match, but he, 
Roddick got broken only once in right? a row in the second set. Sorry, twice, twice. Yeah, and once the last game. No, 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 once, once. No, but he lost a sec. He lost the fourth set. Um, no, right, right. He won, only once. No, he won, he won the, won the fourth set. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you're right. He only got broken once in the fifth. Yeah, I mean that was a brilliant match. Bro, he broke Federer twice. Um, the other, so the, uh, one, the one interesting one was um, Federer Djokovic 2011 French, which only went to four sets. Um, but that was that was an incredible match. Uh, Federer maybe his best performance ever. Uh, Djokovic was 44 and 0 on the year. He had beaten Nadal twice on clay that season. If he wins and then he beats Nadal on clay and then he could do the calendar year Grand Slam, um, that definitely had a lot of stakes. Um, incredible performance by Federer. Uh, a couple of tie breaks. Uh, Nadal 2007 Wimbledon final, the forgotten final. Um, was a really good match. Um, but yeah, so I Federer Nadal 08 as number one. Federer Djokovic 2019 is number two. Mm-hmm. Djokovic and Nadal Australian Open final 2012 like the six hour match where they couldn't walk at the end I have that number three mm-hmm. um, Djokovic and Nadal French 2013 I have that four mm-hmm. and then probably Djokovic and Nadal 2018 Wimbledon semi I have five okay we're gonna have to po- we're gonna have to post that but Asher I thought that was spectacular <laughs> not to be like self congratulating or no, anything no, yeah. I think in conclusion is there any way for Djokovic to get love from from the fans or from the tennis world in the way that Fed and Rafa get and with and kind of intertwining that how far is he from being the greatest of all time I thought one thing that was really interesting is in the in the interview after the match he like on the encore interview before the trophy presentation he referred to Fed like I think not as much in recent times but like before, whenever Fed and Rafa, or sorry, uh, Joker and Rafa would talk about Feder after they beat him in a final, they would refer to him as the greatest of all time. And yesterday, uh, Novak was like, you know, Roger's one of the greatest of all time. And then he's kind of recently been saying pretty openly that like he's trying to be the historic number one. And if he, let's say he wins more Grand Slams than Fed, will he ever get the love? Real quick. On this, the, the topic of him trying to be the, the historic record number one, I genuinely believe Federer is not playing to break records. I think Djokovic is playing to break records. I think he wants to, he really wants to surpass Federer in Grand Slams. I don't mean that in, in like a reductionist way, like he's only playing to break records, but I think it's more important to him. I think it's something he probably is more like cognizant of when he plays. But you don't think Fed cared a lot when, to break Sampras's record? Yeah, I think he cared at that time for sure. Uh, I think it was a really big deal for him when he broke it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's all relative at, at what point someone is in their career. So maybe it's a unproductive conversation. But, you know, Alex's question is a good one. What do you think, Asher? So will, will, will Novak ever get the love? Yeah, like what, um, ha, what does he have to do to, to get the... Uh, to, to be loved by the tennis world in the way that Rafa or, or uh, Fed are? Uh, he ever will be. I think people love Roger uh, not just because he wins, uh, but because of his style, right? Um, the, way, the way he plays, like we discussed, like the, the David Foster Wallace piece. I mean, I think no one's going to write Novak Djokovic as a rel- religious experience, <laughs> <laughs> unless unless the religion involves like berating umpires and <laughs> exaggerating off balance movements on the court. <laughs> <laughs> really good. Maybe um, like a uh, what's it called like the um, 
when someone's like not antichrist, but the anti, uh, what's it called? Anti-dentite? No, no, not the anti-dentite. Like maybe like the Satanists will love Novak. He could be like the, the, the Novak Djokovic has a Satanist experience. It's not that bad. Like, <laughs> after the, we'll post it, but after the, the scoreline saying 666 in that photo, I can't get that out of my head, though. No, that, was, that was pretty good. <laughs> and I guess speaking of 666, we do have a, a somewhat a rather interesting memo that we have been, been able to uncover from uh, Novak's dad. From the ATP archives. From the ATP archives. It's a memo simultaneously from the archives and from the present moment. That, uh, the uh, Novak's dad sent to Novak yesterday after the final. Alex, can you just briefly intro what 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 it's? I don't think it needs much. I don't. I don't think it really needs introduction. I think we'll let the people kind of judge it on their own terms. Okay. We'll play it as we're about to finish here. I think the last question or the last comment I have uh, on a lighter note is I think Novak's parent. Oh, two things. Sorry, two things about their boxes. So about Novak's box. I think his parents have become like much better dressed throughout his career. I think they were looking sick yesterday. His dad had those sick yeah, sunglasses. Really good, really they both were looking yeah. really good. Whereas Federer's dad, what's his dad's name again, Kabir? Robert. Robert, Robert, Robert. Federer has kind of resigned himself to just wearing the RF hat. I'm not that into it. And my, I don't know if any of your mothers had any comments on the final, but my mom said that Mirka Federer was dressed terribly. I don't know. I'm just, Where's hey, I'm Novak's wife and kid. What I'm just the messenger. Any, any insights into why his wife and daughter were not I there? That was interesting. Well, he doesn't have a daughter, has a son. I thought he said his wife and daughter were son. back home. And his, Wait, son was a, his second child was, his second child was a daughter though. Right? Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> was she home? Is the, is the daughter like a baby? The son was there being kind of yeah. shy. I think, yeah, I guess the daughter must be quite newborn, right? I mean, I think he mentioned like they're at the hotel. He said they're at the hotel. Interesting. We'll keep following that. <laughs> but my my take, my general take on Fed's backs, aside from the fact that his parents aren't as well dressed as the Djokovic's, is that you know, hold on, hold on. Let me just finish this. Mirka Feder in the key points in the match when Fed had match points, I've never seen her in the box looking so nervous. Like I feel like no one in your team can look more nervous than the person on court. Like I think that's a basic rule. Like if the person on court looks composed, you look composed. And on those match points, she was covering her eyes. Like, <laughs> I just thought that was like, like, did she lose the match? She was literally covering her face, like overcome with nerves. And so that to me was like a, I thought that was very peculiar. I don't know if you guys have any comments. We might leave it there and let you listen to the uh, letter from Djokovic's father. <laughs> we'll go into the, in the letter from Djokovic's dad, but preview, I think, um, our next episode, we'll cover the hardcore season and talk about U.S. Open, maybe predicting or just analyzing how the surface has changed. We talked about it a bit last year, um, how that how that bodes for the top three. And then I'd say in conclusion, I just feel like thinking about the hardcore season after watching the clay court season and the grass court season just seems not as not as beautiful, not as exciting, not as pure. I don't know. Do you guys, how do you guys feel about that? No, there, there, there is something to be said about the hardcore season is like, 
Let's drink Natty Ices and get messed up. <laughs> Hardcore, it's very utilitarian. Um, just let, it's, well, it's classy. Yeah. It's the classicness, the certain parts of the sport. Yeah, I, I can't say I'm very excited for the Cincinnati Masters, honestly. Even but. though they always say it's a great tournament. Right, yeah, it, 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 seems, it, it seems like the guys are just trying to avoid injury during Toronto and Cincinnati, and no one really cares if they lose in the quarters, right? Yeah. I think it should be three weeks, U.S. Open, a break world tour finals season, but that's another conversation. Hot take. Lastly, uh, cheeky Valley intern, Jared Stratus, any final comments on the match? Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got one comment. Hello everyone. Uh, intern here for cheeky Valley paid or unpaid. Um, that's still being discussed. So <laughs> hope, hopefully paid, but we'll see. Yeah. One thing I wanted to mention, I want to get your guys take, I find it very cool and unique. The end, how there's like the interviews with the players. It's like this intimate experience with the fans that I feel like a lot of other sports don't have. And I think that's really cool to get before the trophy presentation. Yeah. To like get their perspective and what they're thinking about. I think it's really cool to see that. I want to, you guys think yeah that's one thing i think wimbledon has always historically done really well so, so i think roger speaking kabir gets extra close to the tv <laughs> <laughs> when uh, I, I think what wimbledon does really well is for i think it's for all center court and court one matches maybe it's just center court but aside from the final every as soon as the players step off the court they're interviewed mm-hmm. either it's from Mod, our boy mats wielander or john mcenroe or brad gilbert yeah and in the press conference Afterwards, Federer does it in many languages. But yeah, I agree with Jared. Even in the final, just both players doing a immediate interview, and then obviously the trophy yeah, presentation. The yeah, I think so, it's, it's I think it's really good. I mean, it's got to be tough. Federer loses, and they ask him, "All right, how are you feeling?" Class. Yeah, real class for the, the, I mean, the way he spoke after such a dramatic match. But I agree with Jared. I think it's I think they do a really good job with that. Oh, uh, U.S. Open yeah, does that as well. But yeah, Wimbledon, but, I think, does it even better. I think the issue, in particular, with the Australian Open, is that. They, they get out all these like sponsors and like the, the head of Kia and then the players just go have to go, yes, uh, I would like to thank Garnier for a sponsor tournament. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, also, can we just, maybe we need to do some research in this, but Djokovic has a real, has a new sponsor as of this year. It's called Ultimate Software. Do we, has anyone, do we know what that is? It was on Marion Vida's hat. And I looked it's it up. His, it's on his sleeve too. And they, they do sleeve. sponsor. Yeah, they're an official sponsor. I, I have no idea what it is. Ultimate Software. I mean, dude, it's the ultimate software. <laughs> so we're looking HR, it up right H- now. HR, HR, software solutions, and payroll for human capital. <laughs> why <laughs> this Why this company feels Revenue that Djokovic is going to bring in business? We might, maybe we I call... Mean, we, we did Google it. We would not have known it. Maybe we'll call the head of investor relations and see if they can get on the pod. Mm. I think if you're sponsored by like a HR software solutions, that, that automatically disqualifies you from the GOAT discussion. Yeah. yeah. Lame this is really lame. <laughs> and it... Super lame. Wow, bizarre. We, we'll we'll look into this. <laughs> All right, mates. Cheeky volley. It was ranked ultimate software, the sixth best workplace for millennials. Joker. <laughs> Joker hates WeWork. <laughs> so, all right. Pretty excited about this episode. Hopefully, people get this far to the end. Asher, have a great night. Talk to you soon. Signing off here. All right, mate. Okay. Have a good one, mate. A letter to my son Novak. Dear son, I write this to you from our cabin atop the Carpathian mountain range. To the north of me, a gray sky turns darker as the clouds move closer and become heavier with rainwater. A thunderstorm forms, I must admit. 
Despite your victory on Sunday versus Roger, I am disappointed with how you handled yourself. When will you learn? I feel that you are repressing a deep-seated rage that we have worked to unleash ever since your childhood. You must embrace the darkness, my son. I have told you time and time again, this rage you have inside of you, this is power. Sure, you beat Roger, but do you remember when you struck the chair on Pyre's seat? You were centimeters from the judge's foot. How good did that feel? Now imagine if you had struck his foot. My son, your tennis ability will only get you so far. For true fulfillment, you must remain angry and thirsty. Do not succumb to the light, but ensure your fire burns deep and hot within the dark animal of your body. You are angry, you are bad, and your soul seeks no forgiveness. You are a Djokovic. Let the anger out. Do not let it fester and embrace the darkness. A cold embrace and long live the Antichrist. Love, your father, Sean.